there's this 13-year-old boy who loses his father and is raised by his mom. When he's 15, he meets a girl. They fall in love. She becomes pregnant. They have a son. And by all accounts, the 15-year-old boy, now becoming a young man, is devoted to this young woman and their son. But this is in a time and in a society where marriages are mostly arranged and his mother is attempting to climb the social ladder in the only way available to a widow in that society by arranging for her son to marry someone of higher social standing. But this available bride isn't yet of the appropriate age, so it'll be two years until the marriage can actually take place. In the meantime, two things happen. The young man and the mother of his son are heartbroken, and she returns to her hometown, leaving the son with the young father. That's the first thing. The second thing that happens is the boy, the young man, gets antsy waiting for the arranged marriage to happen. He's gotten used to the physical relationship, and so he finds some other partners, really just for the sex. As his spiritual life deepens, he and his mother are both churchgoers. He finds himself racked with guilt over his casual approach to his love life. And that emotional struggle had an impact on nearly all of Christianity, a huge impact. It fundamentally changed Christianity in the Western world. And the impact of that change is still operative in Christianity today. Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce, and this is A Bigger Story. The young man I'm talking about lived in North Africa in a city called Hippo. It's now called the Naba and is in the northeast corner of present-day Algeria. The year was about 367 AD, and the young man's name was Augustine. In 391 AD, at the age of 37, Augustine became a priest, and five years later, he was a bishop. Now, that is some fast-track upward mobility. He was having a spiritual crisis over the lust and what he considered the promiscuousness of his younger days, and he was trying to understand himself spiritually. So Augustine came up with this concept known for millennia now as original sin, and it goes something like this. In the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve fell to temptation and ate the fruit of the tree from which they were forbidden to eat. As a result, all of humanity, as this story goes, all of humanity became permanently corrupted in our essential nature. We are born into sin. We are born sinful from day one, original sin. I bet you've heard the term. That was all a result of Augustine's trying to understand and deal with his earlier behavior, which was tormenting him. He concluded that all humans must have these struggles and that we succumb to them and that it's a fundamental reason why we needed Jesus to die on the cross, to absolve us of our sins by paying the so-called price for them. The thing is, that doctrine, that contention, original sin, is not found in the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians often call the Old Testament. And it's not found in the New Testament either. Paul, the apostle, sometimes writes things like, for I have the desire 
to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. But he doesn't attribute that to a pre-existing condition like original sin. Jewish people have no doctrine of original sin, and nor do Eastern Orthodox Christians like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Listen to the sociologist, psychologist, and philosopher Eric Fromm. He wrote, The Old Testament does not take the position of humanity's fundamental corruption. Adam and Eve's disobedience to God is not called sin. Nowhere is there a hint that this disobedience has corrupted humanity. The concept of original sin, rather, and this is still from, the concept of original sin was invented by Augustine in the 4th century and didn't become official church doctrine until it was adopted by the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Matthew Fox was a Roman Catholic priest of the Dominican order and a prolific author. In 1983, he wrote a book called Original Blessing. His concept of original blessing was pretty logical, and it went like this. In the book of Genesis, God creates everything, looks at it, and says, it is good. God is good. Creation is good. Part of God's creation? Human beings. And if God's creation is good, and if it's true as Genesis recounts that God made man and woman in God's own image, an image which is only good because it's God's image, then the human beings must also be good. And Matthew Fox called this original blessing. And he wrote that original blessing is far more ancient and biblical a doctrine than original sin and ought to be the starting point for spirituality. Because that idea and some others of his ideas were contrary to Augustine and contrary to the subsequent Church Council of Trent, about 1,200 years later, the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Roman Catholic Church, previously known more ominously as the Congregation of the Universal Inquisition, the prefect, the head of that office, excommunicated Matthew Fox. And so Matthew Fox joined up with the more expansive Episcopalians, became an Episcopal priest. And by the way, that prefect, that head of the congregation for the doctrine of faith, responsible for excommunicating Matthew Fox, was a guy named Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict the 15th and is now Pope Emeritus Benedict the 15th. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan priest I count as a spiritual mentor, thanks to all he has written and all he has said. Richard Rohr has built on Matthew Fox's concept of original blessing. Father Richard calls it original goodness, and he develops it in his book, The Universal Christ, which I think is essential reading for anyone trying to develop a spiritual path that's informed in some way by Christian tradition. It's called The Universal Christ. I really recommend you read it. And according to Father Richard Rohr, it's not original sin, it's original goodness. And it's simple. God creates, says it's good. God creates humans in God's good, infinitely good image. And that's the opposite of original sin. It's original goodness. And I hope you're asking right now, Bruce, why is this important? 
And that's pretty simple too. Imagine raising a child or even a pet, beginning with the premise of you are bad, bad girl, bad boy, bad dog, shame on you. How well adjusted do you think that child is going to be? Or the pet? Right. So it's important on that very basic level. As Richard Rohr puts it, I have never met a truly compassionate or loving human being who did not have a foundational and even deep trust in the inherent goodness of human nature, the goodness of human nature. There are these three key theological virtues lifted up by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Christians of his time in Corinth in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians, not a coincidence. You've probably heard it at the end of the reading on love that you hear at weddings a lot. You know, love is patient, love is kind. And that letter from Paul culminates with, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Faith, a fidelity with divine intention, a fidelity with the way of Jesus. Hope, a hope that living in fidelity with the way of Jesus leads somewhere good. And love, a love so deep and infinite and expansive and divine that it believes that all of God's creation and all of God's creatures are imbued with God's goodness. And this is so much better. And if the Bible is important to someone as in some way a source of truth, it's also so much more faithful to the actual Bible than the concept of original sin. But wait, there's more. If I buy into original sin instead of original blessing, then the main reason for Jesus is to go to the cross and die there as a substitute payment for my sin, my original sin. You've heard the phrase, Jesus died for my sins. And it's really sin, not sins, by the way, because sin is thought of as a much more expansive, universal concept than particular sins. Jesus died for my sin. And if you start with original sin instead of original blessing, that's where you go that the main reason for Jesus to be was to go to the cross and die there as a substitute payment for my sin. But if it's original goodness, it leads me, it leads us into a whole more beautiful direction. The 20th century British philosopher Owen Barfield also worked with these ideas. Matthew Fox called it original blessing. Richard Rohr calls it original goodness. Owen Barfield called it original participation. In other words, if it's original sin, my focus on Jesus as a savior is that he is somehow saving me from my sin. But if it's original blessing, original goodness, then Jesus saves not only me, not only humanity, but Jesus saves all of creation, all of it, by revealing by his life not just his death, but also by his life, revealing by his life this beautiful way of participating 
in the amazing, infinite goodness and beauty of all creation, original participation. So I treat all of creation as beautiful and good, and I participate with Jesus in saving all of creation by caring for it, being a faithful, loving steward of creation, by not mistreating creation, not destroying it. And I treat all other humans, all other humans, as made in the divine image, no matter how deeply buried behind pain and all the other junk that can obscure our true good natures that divine image might be, I treat others as made in the divine, infinitely, eternally, amazingly good image of God, no matter what. And when I do, I am participating with Jesus in saving my sister and brother humans because there's no better way to save someone than to keep seeking the divine image, the divine goodness in them, no matter how hard it might be to find. Original blessing, original goodness, original participation. I think that's a much more beautiful and bigger story. Stay in touch, Bruce at brucecole.tv. Remember, you are beautiful and you are loved. <laughs>